What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Hartman Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode 100 and something of the podcast, so we're not a, I never remember the, the episode numbers, but, uh, but point being, we're not a new podcast anymore. But for those of you out there just listening and tuning in for the first time, uh, basically what we do on this podcast is I invite on an author uh, of a book that's been newly published or recently published something uh, on a you know on a topic or on somebody that uh, we think you'd like to hear a conversation about and then at the end of the podcast or you know even in the middle of the podcast if you get your druthers about you you go ahead and uh, give the book a purchase yourself and give it a read so if you like this podcast please consider giving illiteracy a five-star review at apple podcasts or wherever you listen to the show and also by sharing with your friends as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this and my guest today is Mr. Troy Senek. And Mr. Senek is the co-founder of Kite and Key, a digital media company focused on public policy. And he is also a former White House speechwriter for George W. Bush. And his writings have appeared in such outlets as the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, City Journal, National Affairs, and National Review. And lastly, he is the author of A Man of Iron, The Turbulent Life and Improbable Presidency of Grover Cleveland, which was published back in September by Threshold Editions and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Mr. Sinek, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. I'm delighted to be with you, Tim. Uh, no problem. So uh, when I was reading the blurb to the book, you know, the, the little uh, jacket blurb at the end, um, you know, it says the book is a compelling and vivid biography joining the ranks of presidential classics such as David McCullough's John Adams, Ron Chernow's Grant, and Amity Schley's Coolidge. And I read that and I was like, oh man, that's uh, that's setting <laughs> that's setting the bar pretty high before you know going into it. And then uh, I was like, that's a bold strategy there. And then uh, I, I read it and I was like, yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's it's actually it's actually really that good. Uh, it's a, a fascinating book. Um, but uh, but yeah, what so what was the genesis of the book? What what made you want to write a book on Grover Cleveland? Well, first of all, um, thank you for that. That's extremely kind of you to say. Oh, and no. to the extent that it it this book merits comparisons to those three, <laughs> and those are three those are three authors that I, I really think very highly of. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's because it has a similar project, mm-hmm. I think, to all three of those books, which is to rescue from, if not anonymity, at least um, an unjustified obscurity. Uh, a former president who deserves more attention. And so I, I really had I had three things in mind when I was writing this in terms of motivations. The first was um, Grover Cleveland is so we have we have 45 presidents. If you do the full accounting throughout American history, Cleveland is the one, of course, who throws the numbering off because mm-hmm. since he had two non consecutive. Yeah, he terms, had to lose. He accounted you know, twice. Yeah. Up, yeah. 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 So now you have to <laughs> subtract one from every president. It's a little tedious. Um, but out of those 45, there are only 14, so less than a third, who've done a full eight years in office. And if we were to tick through that list, what you'd quickly find 
is that almost all of them are household names, even if you're not a history junkie, even if you're not that into the presidency, with maybe the single exception of Grover Cleveland. So I thought just as a matter of historical and intellectual hygiene uh, that that was unpardonable, that this is a man with a serious record and um, a serious and distinctive place in American life, and he, he should be better remembered. That was point one. Point two, and this gets specifically to the invocation of the book that Amity Schley's, the very good book that Amity Schley's wrote about mm-hmm. Calvin Coolidge, I thought there was a similar principle at work here insofar as you have a figure who, if you're a limited government conservative, if you're a libertarian, even if you're a sort of market-friendly kind of neoliberal Democrat, there's a lot here. There are a lot of touchstones. I mean some people have called – one review of my book referred to Cleveland as America's only libertarian president. And as I explain in the book, that's not quite right, but mm-hmm. it, it's, he's certainly closer than maybe anybody else and, and just odd that somebody with that distinctive a legacy is not remembered as vividly perhaps as he should be. And then the third point quickly is that I thought you know, even if you're not down for that program, even if you're not a limited government constitutionalist of the type that Grover Cleveland was, there is still something inspirational about this story. Because as I say in the book, I, I regard Cleveland's entire career as a rebuke to political cynicism. Because this is a man who rises up through American politics at what is arguably the high water mark of corruption in the history of the federal government. Just an, an incredible and out of control spoil system at this point, and lots of things beyond that too, in terms of sort of corporate government collusion. Mm-hmm. And this is a guy who rises up, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this very quickly. I mean, his entire rise almost politically happens in the course of about three years. And the reason for it is because he is seen as a man apart from those kinds of practices. He is seen as incorruptible. He is seen as deeply principled. And he is seen as somebody who will live out these principles in equal measure and apply them in equal measure to his fellow Democrats as well as to Republicans. And it is just it's the his life embodies the kinds of things we say we want from our presidents. Right. Somebody who comes from a modest background, somebody who makes all of his decisions based on what he thinks is right, even if it comes at a steep political cost. And, you know, in many ways, it doesn't make him a great politician, um, but it does make him a statesman. And, and that was the point that I was really trying to get across. And one of the reasons that I thought that this story was worth telling. Yeah, you wrote he, he possessed uh, moral courage at almost superhuman levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's a pretty good way of putting it. I mean, when you um, when you look at his career and it's funny, you know, <laughs> Everyone says, oh, these are all the things we want in a president. And then, you know, even at that time, and then they elect him and then he acts the way, uh, you know, he uh, he he presidents in a way that, you know, (laughs) people want or say they want a president to, you know, to do their job. And then because he does that, it pisses everybody off. And, you know, he's sort of. uh, Uh, becomes a man without a country almost and and uh, politically uh, at the end of his career but uh, uh, yeah but you you write in the beginning of the book that that Cleveland didn't have one of the the great presidencies uh, but he but he really was one of our great presidents and um, the fact that uh, he is not considered one of our great presidents really says, 
more about the way we judge our presidents than than you know what actually doing that job entails. So really, it's the fault is ours that uh, that Cleveland isn't as thought of as highly as he should be. I, I think that's right. I mean, it sounds paradoxical, right, to say something like that. He didn't have a great presidency, but he was a great president. I, I, I meant a couple of things by that, and I think they become clearer as you go on through the book. One was that to the extent that there is greatness in Grover Cleveland, and I, and I think there is, although to be clear, and I say this explicitly in the book, I'm not arguing he should be on, on Mount Rushmore. Okay. I think there's this kind of second tier of, of distinctive and meaningful presidencies that you can sort of separate from the sort of transcendent greatness of a, a Washington or, or a Lincoln. But w- what I meant by presenting this paradox was, for one thing, the places where you find greatness in Cleveland um, cannot be articulated through a bullet-pointed list of accomplishments during mm-hmm. his his presidency. For one thing, he he failed on a lot of fronts. But for another, they they almost all come down to moments of restraint, moments of character. You know, he is defined in many ways by the things that he he doesn't do. So that's part of it. But another part of it, and as you sort of uh, suggest. The introduction of the book spends a lot of time on this. So I am driven slightly mad by the pastime of presidential rankings. Oh, I hate it. As, as, somebody, <laughs> as well you should. You know, as, as somebody who cares deeply about the presidency as an institution and who has worked in the White House and has, has seen this up close, the reason I don't like them – I mean there's many, but the, the foremost reason I don't like them is because I think they suffer from an aggressive recency bias. Yeah, presentism. And what, yeah, and and what I what I really mean by that is not just that we look more fondly on the presidents who are more recent, because that is not always true, to be sure. B- but what I mean is that we tend to judge presidents by what are fundamentally modern criteria that really don't apply to the presidency prior to the start of the 20th century. You get before Wilson and T.R., arguably McKinley, when you look at sort of 19th century presidents who are not operating in moments of crisis like Lincoln or sort of uh, unusually activist for the era like Jackson. And it's just hard to judge any of them by the standards that are normally used because what what do people measure presidents by? Well, they measure them by how much legislation they're shepherding through Congress. Well, in the 19th century, presidents often didn't do that. They, They were just not as deeply involved in the legislative process. One of the more painful exercises I went through in, in writing this book was to go back and actually read a lot of 19th century inaugural addresses, and which are, is not a pleasant pastime. I don't <laughs> recommend that to any of our listeners. But uh, one of the things that really stands out is how modest they are. So many of these addresses are consist of these very sort of generalized observations about the country. A lot of these presidents are being explicit in their inaugural address about their duty not to intervene in mm-hmm. Congress's business. So that doesn't work as a lens for older presidents. Foreign policy really doesn't work very well as a lens for most 19th century presidents because if you're not a, a wartime president or you don't have sort of significant diplomatic back and forths going on, which was a lot less common in the 19th century because America's sure. role in the world was so much smaller, that doesn't really work either. And Presidential rankings do also tend to really privilege what now we call vision or in retrospect we call legacy. Mm. 
And the presidency was, for the most part, not understand, understood as a visionary office uh, in the 19th century. It certainly was not understand, understood as a visionary office uh, by Grover Cleveland. I mean, there's a, a quote I have laid in the book from a, a friend of Cleveland's who said it just never would have occurred to him to think of the United States as something that he needed to fundamentally reshape. He just had a much more modest conception. Sure of what the executive branch was there for and that he was sort of regarded himself as walking the beat on behalf of the everyday citizen, the, the taxpayer, making sure government ran effectively. But he didn't have this sort of visionary, you know, messianic role that he felt that he needed to play for the American people. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> you wrote his uh, his greatness lay in his ordinariness, mm-hmm. which is a good uh, it's a good juxtaposition. I, I like that. Uh, I like that phrase. Yeah, and I and I I mean that both in his sense of the office, um, his sense of himself. He was very modest and um, really did not take it on any pretense, even as president, but in any elected office. But I also mean that just in terms of who he was. I mean, he came from a, a very modest background, large family. His father was a minister. They didn't have much money. His father dies by the time that he's 16. He doesn't end up going to college because the family can't afford it. Sort of works his way up through a law practice in Buffalo, but he is not some flashy courtroom order. If anything, that's usually the whoever his partner is in his law firm. He's the one who's back in the office working until 3 o'clock in the morning on paperwork. Yeah. And And this is a guy who – He's not rhetorically flashy. He is certainly not physically flashy. I mean, one of the few things that most people probably know about him is that he was our second heaviest president. He came in at about 275 pounds, standing about five foot eleven. Wasn't he a bad is, looking uh, dude in his youth, though. I mean, no, good. there is a yeah. picture in the book of yeah, him yeah. young, where you can you can sort of see an appeal that he might have had in his his twenties that sure. <laughs> goes away as time passes <laughs> by, and he is often. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, physically compared to a walrus, I've seen that a few times. <laughs> he has this big walrus mustache and yeah. he's kind of rotund. And so he's, um, as I say in the book, he doesn't look like a president. He looks like somebody who'd be running a foundry. You know, he just <laughs> there's this very kind of blue collar sensibility that runs through him. It's how he looks. It's how he acts. It's how he thinks. And he just feels plucked from amongst the American people in a way that a lot of presidents don't. Mm. Yeah, his um, you talked a little bit about his his uh, parentage and uh, his uh, life growing up, but he's his personal. He's really a even though he's born in New Jersey and raised in sort of upstate New York, uh, Western New York. He's he's really a I guess you call it a New England Yankee uh, by temperament. His mm-hmm. personality seems to be more uh, or because his uh, all his people peoples uh are from i mean generally pretty much from new england and his father i think is the first one right to strike out basically from from new england to new jersey and whatever but so he's really although he's considered a new yorker uh he's 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 really not uh that type of person he's more of a like i said a new england yankee I, I think that's right. And I, I don't do a lot of um, side by sides. In fact, this is the only one I think in the book of, of Cleveland and, and Coolidge. But I do compare him to Coolidge on this front insofar as he has a very sort of New England flinty Flintiness. Yankee. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the it's the adjective that is exclusive mm-hmm. to New England. <laughs> yeah, right? right. Anytime you hear flinty, you're they talking got, they, about it. They got a monopoly on the flint. Yeah. <laughs> but there there is that 
sensibility in that he is he's extremely hardworking. He's a man of relatively few words. Um, and everything comes down to, you know, let's get down to, let's get down to business. You know, he is not, he's not a frivolous person in the, in the slightest sense. And I've had people ask me a few times, um, in the course of promoting this book, well, explain how he became uh, a Democrat because he's a, he's a northerner at a time when the Democrats are really a, a Southern party. Not that there weren't Northern Democrats, but just, you would expect, you know, more of the leading politicians to come from the South. And of course, he is coming of age as a Democrat at the time when the Democrats are still of the two parties in the era, the more limited government party. They're still hewing closer to the kind of the Jeffersonian tradition. And I always tell people, I I can't tell you the exact trajectory that he took to get there because he's not a particularly introspective person. You know, he doesn't write a lot of deep reflections on how his political personality was was formed, but I think with Grover Cleveland, as with most people, a lot of ideology is downstream from biography. Sure. And to be somebody who had this conception of the world, who put such a premium on on hard work and reliability. I mean, the first things that we have in Grover Cleveland's hand are essays that he wrote as a grade schooler, where he's writing admiringly about people like George Washington and Andrew Jackson because they used their time well when they were young. They self-disciplined, and that was what set them on the path to greatness. You can just see that this is in him from the start. Mm-hmm. So the the party that casts a more skeptical eye towards government and the party that places a bigger um, premium on self-reliance is going to be the party for Grover Cleveland. And I, I think that he, he sort of comes into the world fully formed in this sense because you just see this in him from – the earliest ages that we have any accounts of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's in the time where he's going to become politically active. Uh, I mean, you can tell he's his belief in the Democratic Party message is not just opportunist, uh, opportunistic, because when he's going to get involved in politics, it's been, the Democratic Party is essentially at probably the lowest ebb it's ever been in our country's history. I mean, uh, you know, as you know in the book, he's the only a Democrat elected to uh, elected president between James Buchanan in 1856 and Woodrow Wilson in 1912. And a lot of that has to do with the fallout from, uh, you know, the civil war and, and right. many of the uh, rebels being uh, Democrats or, well, or practically all of them being Democrats and uh, sort of the democratic party getting, uh, you know, tarred with that, uh, uh, with that, you know, uh, with that, uh, epithet of being traitorous or whatnot but um Mm -hmm. so he's uh, you know he's coming along at a time when the fortunes of the party are at a very low ebb so if you had any sort of uh ambitions for uh i mean especially the presidency or something like that right which it seems like this would not be the trade right 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 which seems like a lot of people who run for president have very early on i mean they get that itch sort of right you know early on and it never goes away and cleveland just sort of um stumbles <laughs> into it i guess or he, just he, is he, propelled he into of, it in a way you know? yeah he, he kind of does and I, I was trying to strike a balance in the in the book on this because um there aren't a lot of cleveland biographies that have been written but of the ones that have been there are some that I, I think are just slightly too misty-eyed on this point and maybe a little too hagiographic. 
that make it sound as if Grover Cleveland was sort of the, you know, the starlet discovered at the the counter of the mm-hmm. drugstore. You know, like it just <laughs> completely fell into it. And there's a little bit of that to it. Um, but nobody becomes president of the United States without some ambition. Sure. And, he, and he developed sure. he developed it over time. But you're quite right to say, I mean, early on in his career, he um, he is always sort of being recruited. And it's not even that he's being recruited because people think, oh, he's this amazing talent. He's usually being recruited for jobs that nobody else wants. Yeah. And, and it's because he's he's thought of as as reliable and decent. So he the earliest elected office that he holds in the early 1870s is the sheriff in Erie County, New York where Buffalo is, which is where he lived for most of his adult life before he becomes president. And uh, nobody wanted the sheriff's job. And then the sheriff's job was considered sort of a bastion of corruption. And he comes in there, cleans it up, and uh, is admired even by Republicans in Buffalo for this reason, but also is kind of unpopular with his fellow Democrats for this because they sort of liked the arrangement the way it was before, where maybe, you know, when deliveries are made to the sheriff's office, a little bit, to use the modern parlance, falls off the truck. Right. And there's a little bit of a kickback to the sheriff as a result. So he does two years in that position and then leaves politics uh, for better part of a decade and leaves politics in part because he is not asked to come back. Yeah. And when he runs again in 1881 and becomes the mayor of Buffalo, it's a similar scenario. Uh, he is not the first choice. I don't know that he's the 10th choice. A group of local Democrats trying to recruit a candidate just haven't found anybody. And it's actually a chance encounter uh, in a pub there in Buffalo with some of these sort of dejected Democratic Party men who have been turned away by all the better citizens of the city that leads to them looking at Grover Cleveland and saying, well, why not? <laughs> you know, And – where the electricity really happens is in that stint as mayor, um, because there are a couple of big sort of reformist moments where he is standing against the entrenched interests. And then you start to see the press in Buffalo get really electrified and you start to see the people of Buffalo get really electrified. And this quickly snowballs into something that leads to him becoming governor of New York and then a few years after that to becoming uh, president. And by that time, there is a real ambition there, but he is certainly not – you know, the person that you or I, having been around the political world, knows who at, at the age of 16 has already mapped out the 30-year plan for which office they're going to hold when. Oh, yeah. I, went to, I went to high school with one of those, actually. I'll tell you who it is afterwards. <laughs> oh, good. I, I'm anxious to hear. I mean, we all The more time you've spent around politics, the more of those people you know. Yeah. And um, – and, and which is a fool's errand anyway, right? Because even if you do have those ambitions and you're really good and you have the talent, we, when you're talking about getting to that level, it all comes down to lightning strikes anyway. It doesn't matter how well you've planned it out. But with Cleveland, I mean, he just clearly never planned it out. As I say in right. the book, I think the most that he probably aspired to, at least at the start, was probably a judgeship somewhere in New York, which in a way would have made more sense. He's a little like William Howard Taft insofar as he is probably somebody with more of a judicial temperament than an executive one. He's a little miscast as president of the United States. Yeah. Well, to be fair to those uh, Democratic Party officials in Buffalo who decided upon him in a bar, I would have to say that I think history shows that most of the best 
laid plans are hatched in saloons. So, um, so I think it actually <laughs> worked well, that, out. <laughs> the, the, the best <laughs> and the worst, right? Yeah, right, That's right, the right. dichotomy. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a thin line between best and worst when you hatch yeah. a plan in a saloon. Um, yeah, but actually, uh, before we get into that, talk a little bit about uh, about Buffalo. What Buffalo was like during this uh, this time period that, that Cleveland's going to yeah. move there and, and rise up um you know uh, rise up in the democratic party um it's a it's a really interesting story of a city i mean of a you know that's sort of maybe an afterthought now for you know most people i'm sure the tourist trade in buffalo you know isn't very big other than niagara Falls, but downtown buffalo is actually very very pretty um but uh yes, it is. yeah but anyway so what what is buffalo new york like in you know the 1860s 1870s yeah well i'm glad you put that plug in for buffalo actually because i I was up there at the start of of working on this book i'd been there before but i'd never spent as much time as i did doing some of the research for this book and um, buffalo often gets cataloged with that list of kind of big rust belt metros that are they're kind of decaying and there's certainly some truth to that uh, more than a little but it is it really is a wonderful city, and at its peak, which is a little after um, when we're talking about Cleveland arriving there. But at its peak, I mean, they they have, there's some incredible architecture there. There were some incredible mm-hmm. parks, and there are still mm-hmm. vestiges of it. And it's a city that I sort of deeply hope has a comeback. And I think there's some sort of green shoots of it there. But your question is about Buffalo and Grover Cleveland's era. Grover Cleveland gets to Buffalo in the mid 1850s. And it is a city that is really well calibrated for a guy like Grover Cleveland to rise in. And what I mean by that is if he had stayed – so he spends a year in, in New York City. He, he uh, I guess I should do the chronology here. So he's born in New Jersey, but they move away because his father is not quite an itinerant pastor, but he, he is taking a series of jobs throughout Cleveland's childhood. They leave New Jersey when he's three. He grows up mostly in upstate New York. Uh, it bounces around. The family moves two or three times, goes to New York City to teach for a year just to make money for it to support his family after his father dies. If he had stayed in New York City, hard to see him really having anything close to the kind of rise that he had. And I don't even mean politically. I mean even in the legal field, there's too much of an establishment even at that point for this guy who is uncredentialed and somewhat unlettered and doesn't have a name that really means anything. Uh, and his actual plan when he leaves New York is to move to the city of Cleveland, Ohio, which is named for a distant relation of his. He's quite young at this point, and so he makes a decision that, you know, a 17, 18-year-old might, which is, well, it's the same name, so it'll it'll probably work. I mean, mm-hmm. and he, he stops off in Buffalo on the way there. He has an aunt and uncle in Buffalo, and his uncle is a somewhat connected, pretty successful guy in town. Um, not a Democrat, a Whig, actually, and then later an influential Republican who takes a look at this plan of his and says, what are you, you know, what are you doing? You know, why, why don't you stay here in Buffalo and uh, we can we can find a way for you to make it in the world? It gets him into a, a local law firm, which starts his kind of legal rise. So why does Buffalo fit him so well? Well, it's because Buffalo is is blooming, but it is it is newly blooming. Buffalo doesn't have that kind of establishment that a lot of other big East Coast metros 
already had at that point, right? You can you can yeah. sort of be Grover Cleveland and have come from nothing. And and the reason for this is because Buffalo had really opened up with the construction of the Erie Canal, because now it is this major thoroughfare for shipping and and commerce. And if you actually go into the uh, local history museum in Buffalo, you will see there's a chart they have there with just the, the census readout every 10 years, what the population is. And it is exploding throughout the 1800s. It is just growing at a breakneck pace. And it's a little rowdy and a little raucous because since it's on the canal, it's, yeah, it's kind a port of, town. It's yeah. a port town. And so, you know, as I, as I say in the, the book, there are accounts at the time of like, Cops would not go down the street unless they were in pairs. That's how sort of crazy it was. And the the song that we all know, this old standard, the Buffalo gals, won't you come out tonight? It's a reference to the prostitution trade in Buffalo. This is how, how crazy it was at the time. But it's a place where a young man like Grover Cleveland, who is not playing with any of the house's money, can rise because it is just so dynamic. It's coming from nothing. Ex nihilo. It's just happening in Buffalo. And that's really why it 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 fits him. And as I, as I say, if Grover Cleveland stays in New York, I don't think he has this career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like you said, he's mayor or excuse me, he's a sheriff of Erie County um, basically for a couple of years in the early 1870s. Then he's out of politics uh, pretty much for a decade uh, yeah. Until again, like you said, they just sort of, uh, you know, slinging back drinks at the bar and said, "Well, why not Cleveland?" And um, he gets elected mayor and does such a good job that he's immediately, uh, I mean, literally, practically, almost immediately, um, put up for governor of New York. So he's <clears throat> he becomes mayor of Buffalo in 1882, and then he becomes governor of New York in 1883. And then, <laughs> uh, a year in the other direction. It's mayor. Oh, I'm sorry. Right. Um, and the, well, actually, you're correct in terms of when he was sworn in. Sworn in. Right. Right. The, right. The, the, the mayor's the, race sure, yeah. was 1881. Yeah. Yeah. So becomes governor of New York in 1882 and then or wins the election in 1882. Right. And then, you know, basically like a little bit over a year later, uh, he's up for president of the United States and wins in 1884 yeah. so i mean it's really uh as you say it's a, quite a remarkable uh <laughs> rise that you can go from you know out of politics uh completely and into the white house i mean i know lincoln did that but uh that's sort of like sui generis but um uh, but yeah it's just a, from mayor to governor to and new york is probably i mean I think it's objectively, you probably say it's the most important state in the country at that at that point, the most populous, uh, you know, the center of commerce and everything. So sort of New York sort of dominates the Electoral College and everything else. So uh, that's a big consideration for, you know, running someone for president. But it's a uh, yeah, it's a it's a very fast, fast journey from from Buffalo to I mean, from private practice to in Buffalo to the White House. Yeah, I always tell people that the the craziest way to understand this story is to look at him in 1881 before he's mayor and he turns he turns 44 that year. And who is he? He's a pretty much anonymous lawyer in Buffalo. Well thought of there, but certainly not known outside of Buffalo. And then to imagine that within three years, the same guy is president of the United States. There was a, a passage, I think it was a footnote that we ended up 
cutting out of the book and on reflection, I don't know why, because I've mentioned it in multiple interviews now, which is probably good testimony <laughs> to the fact that it just should have been in the book. Hmm. But um, when Cleveland gets sworn in as president in 1885, it's recorded that the thought that is dominant in his mind is four years prior to this, when it would have been James Garfield being sworn in. The, the guy who was being sworn in to be president of the United States four years ago had no idea who I was. And it's a very weird thing that you cannot say about most presidents. And, and you're quite right that New York is really central to this because as you mentioned earlier, there's this huge gap in the wake of the Civil War where Democrats just don't get elected president. James Buchanan in 1856 and then you don't get another one until Cleveland and after Cleveland you don't get Woodrow Wilson until 1912. So why does this happen? Well, there's a couple reasons. One, it really helps that Grover Cleveland is a northern Democrat, and harder, harder to tar him with the associations with the Confederacy and with the South. He did not serve in the Civil War, and in fact, he, he paid, as was legal, but still controversial. He, When he was drafted, he paid a substitute to serve in his stead, partially because he still had to earn money to support his family. And a couple of his other brothers had already gone and served on the Union side. But still, even that sort of tangential yeah. association with the Union helps for these purposes, right? And then the other thing that really mattered, apart from those sort of fides, was the fact that he, all along, his entire political career is a story, and kind of the story that it would have to be for a minority Democratic Party at the time, of ascending to office with Democratic support and a significant chunk of sort of reformist Republican support mm -hmm. because what had happened in the aftermath of the Civil War as often almost inevitably happens when you get one party rule somewhere is that everybody gets too fat and happy. Um, I call it in the book the sort of the political equivalent of gout. Republicans won everything in the aftermath of the Civil War and as a result – they started feeding at the trough, and there was lots and lots of corruption within the Republican Party, within the federal government. And the more time passed, the more that led to a split within the party. Again, another thing that tends to happen when a party has it too good, right? It, it, you end up, it ends up fissuring. You end up getting significant factions within the party. And this uh, reformist segment of the Republican Party really attaches to Cleveland because he just manages to navigate this in such a way – where they feel like they are voting for their principles when they're voting for Grover Cleveland, but they're not abandoning their underlying partisan loyalties. Mm -hmm. And what's re what's remarkable about this and what's remarkable about his whole career, and, and I, I don't want to sell this as a um, an unambiguous virtue because there are lots and lots and lots of places where this goes wrong for him, but none of this is calculated. He just does not have that in him. He is the least Machiavellian figure who's ever been in the White House, maybe. He's just not – Woodrow Wilson says of him after his presidency is over, his calculations were never intelligible to normal politicians because he wasn't making calculations. Right. He was just doing the thing that he thought was right, and it just happened to hit right in this moment. I mean I, I've said a few times now that I, I don't think Grover Cleveland – has the career he has if you move him 10 years backwards in history or 10 years forward. It just really fits this moment, and which is a thing that we could say of many presidents, right? There's a kind of survivorship bias. This is the reason they ended up there in the first place. Yeah. But with him, it is particularly true because he just fits this moment in American history in a way that he wouldn't almost anywhere else. Well, 
guess we should talk about this now since there's only people really only know a few things about Cleveland, you know, if they know anything about Cleveland at all, you know, one that right. is maybe he was president twice, but not consecutively, um, you know, that he was a big dude, um, <laughs> that he used the veto a lot. And mm-hmm. the other thing would be the story about uh, Maria Halpin and the uh, uh, the, the potential uh, bastard child, I guess you would call it. Yeah. Um, illegitimate child, excuse me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, hey, you used the language that was used at the time. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, you know, and if anything that's come down from the period, it's that, you know, little campaign ditty, you know, mama, where's our paw off to the White House? Ha ha ha. That right. sort of thing. So. Um, talk about the Maria Halpin story and, and what about this is, what do we know about this whole situation that is true and, uh, what of it, uh, that we think we know that is actually probably just legend or hearsay or whatever. Yeah, there's a lot of both. And uh, I went into the book with a, a very open mind on on this and uh, and also some other questions regarding Cleveland's wife um, later mm-hmm. on. This is after this, which cut in the same direction because there's um, there's a real admixture of stuff that we know is true, um, stuff that we know is false and stuff that we're unsure about. So the backstory here is Grover Cleveland, when he runs for president in 1884, the first time. He's still unmarried. He's still a bachelor at this point. And, you know, as you would suspect from everything that we've said so far, uh, a big part of his appeal is this sense of integrity and principle and moral rectitude. And shortly after he gets the nomination in 1884, a story comes out that actually he is uh, sort of a dastardly individual, a man of low moral character, I believe is the phrasing in the story, who's – uh, drunk and carousing with women of the night and also the the big sort of explosion in this story uh, had fathered a child out of wedlock um, in the years prior to his uh, electoral tenure in in Buffalo. So what do we know about this? Well, he did he did have a relationship with the woman in question, Maria Halpin, and she did have a child. Now, the defense that is offered uh, for Cleveland at this point is that she was seemingly involved with many men and that could have been any of them. And actually several of them were married. And so it would have made sense that if she was targeting somebody for paternity claims, somebody that she could potentially uh, persuade to marry her, that Grover Cleveland would be the target. Um, I find these arguments pretty unpersuasive. There's not real good historical evidence for it. We know that there was a relationship between Cleveland and, and Halpin. Um, and in the most sweeping biography of Cleveland and the one that had access to the most contemporaries, it was written about 90 years ago by a guy named Alan Nevins. In fact, it won the Pulitzer Prize. There is a claim in there by Nevins, pretty good on most of these questions. The Cleveland himself wrote a letter during his second term, uh, expressing his own lack of confidence. And he didn't know whether he was the child's father or not. This is not an open and shut case because Nevins does something unusual there relative to the rest of his biography, which is he does not footnote this citation. He does not tell you where this letter is. Mm. And I have been able to find no evidence of this letter. 
I've asked the Library of Congress. They have no evidence of this letter. So if, if it exists, it's somewhere out on the out on the wind. What people um, may know about this story, because it's it's really sort of come to the forefront in the last decade uh, because of a book that advanced a particular narrative about this, is this kind of freak show version of it where Cleveland has this child out of wedlock and he's nervous about the implications for his political career. So he has the mother thrown in an asylum and the child thrown in an orphanage. And the most purple versions of this story actually said the child was conceived out of rape. And these all come from representations that were made during that 1884 campaign. But the, the person who was involved recently in, in writing the book that spread this, I don't know whether this was intentional or it was just not being able to navigate the sources. The press at the time was notoriously yellow mm. and notoriously partisan. And the original story that ran, that broke this, had the allegations about the asylum and the orphanage. And they were sort of funhouse mirror versions of what really happened, which is that Maria Halpin, by the admissions even of her friends and associates, uh, had a fairly serious drinking problem. And Grover Cleveland, who was providing for her and this child financially, uh, Grover Cleveland grew concerned that this was an unsafe atmosphere for this child to be raised in. And so he asked uh, a friend of his who was a retired judge who sat on the board of a local orphanage to look in on the situation and make it a determination about this question. And the judge made the determination that it was not, in fact, safe for the child and convinced the mother that it would be better to put the child up for adoption, to put the child in an orphanage to eventually be put up for adoption. She agrees to this. She moves up to Niagara Falls to start a new life and uh, immediately regrets it. Comes back to Buffalo, actually abducts the child from the orphanage. So the story that runs in the press, the child is snatched from her, is actually the authorities from the orphanage coming back to get the child that she has removed from their premises. Mm. And the story of her going to an asylum is actually the story of her being put in a facility that is was used for the treatment of the mentally ill, but was also a sanitarium. It was used to treat alcoholism. And right. she was there voluntarily, and she was there for about 10 days. So this is part of the reason this doesn't really stick to Cleveland during the campaign, because as the truth comes out, it turns out, well, he was, seemed to be trying to do the right thing everywhere, and this isn't necessarily uh, dignified or morally laudable behavior, but the worst aspects of it are manufactured. Well, it's, it's sort of stuck to him in posterity because, I mean, as you – uh, as you make note of the book, the, the rape allegations against Cleveland are are just sort of printed uncritically. Uh, yes. You know, up to this day, I mean, you mentioned Newsweek and The Atlantic and I mean, Salon. Yes. I mean, not surprising about Salon, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but like Vice and all these other outlets are, you know, just sort of print that as fact. And even if you like go to his Wikipedia page, um, yes. you know, it even says like, well, it's unclear whether or not he raped her. I mean, which I guess is like technically true of like any rape allegation from like the 19th century. Right. You know, because like, you know, because there's just, there's no cameras, there's no recording equipment. You know what I mean? Like, yes, it's just like, or yes, or although absent although an eyewitness, I... that sort of thing, like you're not going to be able to prove it, but I mean, it's just, you know, uh, but it, it's stuck to him. Um, you know, even though it most likely 
probably didn't happen that way, you know? Well, in in the, in this case, we have, I think, as good of a case as could be made right. that this actually did not happen mm-hmm. because the, the, the rape allegation, which is really the thing that doesn't resurface until this book is written about a decade ago, the rape allegation comes from a either a research oversight or an agenda, I don't know. The, the origins of this are that months after this original story comes out in the 1884 election, and just right before, only a few days before um, actual election day, a story comes out again in the newspapers that, that has this story, that Maria Halpin was impregnated through a rape. Where does this come from? Well, an affidavit signed by Maria Halpin, which is pretty persuasive, Right, which is the reason that the author in question ran with this. There's a big, big omission here, which is that, and we should wonder about there being an omission because if this is coming out a few days before an election, why would it not have cost Grover right. Cleveland the presidency in the year 1884? And the reason is because uh, a day or two later, a story runs where Maria Halpin was tracked down by a reporter, and Maria Halpin said that she had signed this affidavit without reading it because it had been presented to a friend of hers with the story that they actually needed her to voice her her support for Grover Cleveland, the fact that she didn't have anything against Grover Cleveland. And so this runs in the story. She's horrified by it. And then she goes to the press and says, I have all the material details of this story have already been out. I have nothing negative to say about Mr. Cleveland. Mm-hmm. That's why it goes away. So we have in her own words – this didn't happen, and that was just ignored or never found by the people who've been propagating this for the last few years. Yeah, I can't remember if you said so in the book or not, but did she ever get reunited with her with her son, Marie Halpin? No. Uh, the child did get put up for adoption. There is a, a theory out there about who the the child became, um, no, which is not something. We don't even yeah, know because because the the name would have been changed under mm-hmm. the adoption standards of the day, and the, there is a theory as to who the child grew up to be. Um, it was not deeply relevant to to my book, so I I haven't parsed it. it. But it doesn't seem to me the little I've paid attention to it as if it's a a closed case. I'm I'm not sure gotcha. that the evidence there is is airtight, even if it's suggestive. Okay, gotcha. All right, uh, well, moving on from that, um, the other thing people know about Cleveland or seem to know is that he was uh, you know, frequent use of his veto powers and uh, yeah. you know you mentioned the book uh, 584 vetoes in total which is like uh, which is like Babe Ruth like being second <laughs> in like vetoes uh, to Grover Cleveland it's like when like Babe Ruth like retired at like 700 home runs and like the next closest person to him was like you know, like 350 home runs away or something like that. Right. You know, I mean, as I mentioned in the book, the only person who surpasses him is FDR, but it takes FDR 12 years to do it. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, so when people hear that and they, uh, you know, especially like the libertarians are like, oh yeah, you know, veto power, hell yeah. You know, that he was just, you know, whipping out the veto left and right on everything. Mm. Uh, But that's not really uh, the case. The context of it is a difference. The, the concept most of those vetoes, a significant number of those vetoes was on one issue, and that um, was whether to expand uh, or extending pensions to uh, or growing the pension system for 
uh, union veterans and, and quote unquote disabled union veterans and that sort of thing. So uh, tell us about that, how uh, how uh, Cleveland was using the veto on that one particular issue and why it the, those numbers started like tacking up because they uh, the way the bills were introduced. Yeah, I, I should say on this front, because it might sound unbelievably antique, right, to your listeners to think that they're going to get extensive analysis of vetoes on pension bills. <laughs> the one of the things I really set out to do in this book, and, and this is a, a backdoor way I'll try to sell people on it, this is such a, this is such a neglected area or era, rather, of American history. You just you usually get two days on it when you're in high school, and that's the last you hear of it. So what I really try to do in this book is to present you the issues that Grover Cleveland dealt with during mm -hmm. his time, but also to give you kind of a general sense of what is happening in America, like why these things are relevant, because they just get ignored. Yeah. We, we don't understand this era. It, there are eras of American history that are more distant, right? The founding or the Civil War, where the principles are much clearer to us than what on earth people were fighting over in the 1880s and 90s. So why do people care so much about military pensions? Well, not directly in terms of scale, but in terms of their, where they fell in the hierarchy of the federal budget, talking about military pensions in this era would be like talking about entitlement programs today. Mm -hmm. This was the second biggest expenditure of the federal government behind interest on the debt. And uh, as, as you suggest, you know, I say in the book, you just read the raw number of vetoes and you assume that Grover Cleveland is just doing combat with Congress left and right on these huge sweeping plans. And there is some of that, but an awful lot of it uh, is this issue. And the reason that he was so particular about this. So this pension plan had been set up only for union veterans, Confederate veterans. If they got pensions at all, they got them from state governments in the South. The federal government did not provide for this. This pension program had been set up for union veterans so that if you were injured in the course of your service and disabled in such a way that you couldn't work, that you would be taken care of. Um, but a number of changes are made to it over the years, uh, one of which is that you can start uh, applying backdated to the date of the injury as opposed to the date that you apply. So this now is a, is a, can be a goldmine for people if they can get a successful claim in. And you see these huge expansions of the number of people going on the pension rolls. And the politics here are really important because for Republicans, this sort of operates in a similar way to how earmarks work. I mean, this mm -hmm. is constituency building. I can, I can give these away to people because it wasn't just – if you didn't get the application through the Veterans Bureau, uh, members of Congress – would just write individual bills for this one person to get this one pension. And this is where Cleveland is going to war. And it's not – he is often portrayed on this matter as if he's just this unfeeling skinflint who just wants to keep this money from being moved out to, to these veterans. It's not, it's not the principle at work. In fact, he approves way more of these than he denies. The principle at work for him is that if the government is going to be handing out this kind of money – Boy, we ought to be doing it for a meaningful purpose, and there could be no more meaningful purpose than rewarding the people who stood up for union in a moment of maximum danger where it mattered the most. But that is the thing that makes it so disgraceful that we would simultaneously be handing these out to people who are making fraudulent claims. And there were lots and lots of fraudulent claims of people trying to game the system. It's almost like stolen valor in a way, you know? 
Yeah, I give, give a couple of ridiculous examples in the book. One, for instance, is a guy who claims that he broke his leg picking flowers and now is entitled to a pension. <laughs> because, because he got and shot Cleveland in the leg like 12 is, years earlier or whatever it was. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. And uh, people or, or the gunshot, the gunshot made the the injury worse when he when he felt when he was picking the flowers, he tripped in a hole or something, and because he got shot in the leg twelve years earlier, that that added significant, you know, uh, extra trauma to the injury, and therefore right. And I the, the and the the amazing thing about this story, I, I I think it's the same one. I might be transposing them, but the amazing thing about this story is that the leg injury itself would have been enough to get somebody a pension. But when <laughs> when Cleveland investigated this, it turned out that he'd never been shot in the leg, that he'd actually been on sick leave with a fever or something mm-hmm. when he claimed he got the, <laughs> the gunshot injury. So this is, this is a matter to him of sort of actually standing up for the valor of the people who really served. And this, this is why he's so aggressive about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's incredible. I mean, and uh, even, you know, his concern not only that, but just like, you know, the the monetary concern about how much it's going to add to the budget. I forget how what the figure was in the book, like how much uh, I think it was like a couple thousand percent that the program uh, came in over budget from what they thought it was going to cost to what it actually ended up costing. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty yeah he's he is very he's very lawyerly. And so he is always going back into the paperwork and, and he points out quite correctly and he, he ended up. Proving to be right about this because when Benjamin Harrison succeeded him, they did expand the pension program and it did grow way beyond what the projections had been. Shocking. Cleveland had predicted this because he had gone back and looked at all the pensions they had done in the past for military veterans Mm -hmm. and shown that every time they did this, the claims were dramatically higher than what the estimates were. Yeah. I mean as you mentioned in the book, the last Civil War pensioner (laughs) just died – like two years ago <laughs> while the book was being written <laughs> yeah. so even a hundred and uh what are we now 170 years out from the civil war they were, you know, we're still paying off you know still yeah. paying pensions to people um yeah that's incredible um so and it took up a significant uh chunk of his time at the president because you mentioned how much of a uh, the work ethic he had, and he basically worked from like eight in the morning until, you know, two or three in the morning, like the following morning, uh, you know, outside of yeah, a couple, right. couple breaks. And he's, and he's doing this without anything really like a modern White House staff, which is not just a matter of, you know, they didn't have the infrastructure for it. He's like this. He didn't, yeah. he doesn't really delegate. Yeah. And this is not, um, this is not something that I necessarily recommend as an executive style. And he was even criticized at the time for how much, how much time and effort he put into these things. But it's very important that he is still acting like he is a lawyer in his shop in Buffalo and he's got to inspect every word himself. Yeah. That changes a bit once he gets reelected. Uh, he starts to ease up on the, on the uh you know control freakishness of uh you know you know he's not entirely jimmy carter <laughs> i mean he's uh, that's right he starts he starts that's to right. there's up. a yeah there's a there's a difference in the second term for a couple of reasons one is that i think i think a, a minor cause of this is that he realizes it didn't always serve him well in the first term but i think the major cause of this is that his second term is so overrun with crises mm-hmm. that he just doesn't have the time to dedicate to things like this because you have the biggest economic depression that the country has faced up to that time going on in his second term. You have this big fight where he's trying to prevent the U.S. from 
annexing Hawaii, where he thinks we've been illegitimately involved in overthrowing the government right before he comes back into office. You have this huge labor turmoil that really reaches its crescendo with the Pullman strike in Chicago, which mostly forgotten now, but shut down commerce to significant parts of the country and left people thinking that we were going to fight another civil war, you know, this time on on class lines. And so he is constantly just trying to hold everything together in his second term. So a lot of things in the first term end up looking really quaint and prosaic by comparison to the second term where he is really just darting from crisis to crisis. Mm -hmm. And he actually wins, even though he loses re-election in the Electoral College, he he wins the popular vote. He actually wins the popular vote three straight times, uh, which is a considerable achievement, even if, you know, the popular vote really doesn't uh, mean anything. But uh, outside of Cleveland, FDR, I guess, would have to be the only um, or trying to think of anyone. Oh, Andrew Jackson. Jackson, Jackson, right, because Jackson doesn't get the Electoral College the first. Well, it gets thrown to the House. But yeah, that uh, is, again, another one of the reasons that I thought this is a weird figure for history to overlook. If you if you are a president who's in a category only with Andrew Jackson and Franklin Roosevelt, we sure. probably ought to know a few things. <laughs> exactly. About you. Yeah. And then uh, I know we won't get to we've already gone. Oh, crap. We've already gone like an hour. Um, so we <laughs> won't get to talk about tariffs and bimetallism and civil service reform and all that stuff. But um, um, but yeah, as you mentioned in the book, so. Uh, because of the panic of 1893 and various other things, the Democrats are when Cleveland's in his second term, the Democrats get virtually wiped out Crushed. in the 1894 midterms. I think like, is this the worst loss of any party in the history of Congress in an election? Or it's, it's up there. It's like one or two. Isn't in it? the House, it is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so and then the Democrats won't take control of Congress for another 18 years after that. And, you know, you say by that time. Uh, the Democratic Party will be virtually unrecognizable to Cleveland's time. And that's part of the reason why he's just sort of almost um, instantly uh, forgotten, and for which is so odd considering he was such a, um, a pivotal figure of that period, or, or at least a... a, a you know, sort of well-known figure of that period. Um, and like I said, the uh, a two-term president, uh, the only Democrat between Buchanan and Wilson, but yet he's just sort of just uh, lost the history. But his contemporaries um, thought uh, Rose, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, um, all his contemporaries thought very highly of the man and uh, the job he did as president of the united states and the way he carried himself as president and and all that sort of thing yeah there was a lot there's a lot of praise for him i mean tr who he had worked with when tr was in the legislature in new york and he, he was governor but a member of the opposition party taft who was a member of the opposition party you know wilson who in many ways ends up erasing his legacy because mm-hmm. wilson is the one who moves and from the presidency anyway is the one who moves the democratic party to the progressive side and people, people mark twain um, H.L. Mencken, who the book starts mm. with, who hated every politician except yeah, right. for Grover Cleveland. <laughs> um, and as I mentioned in the book, it is his contemporaries, but it's also people within living memory. Because mm. even when you get to the 1920s, you know, the proposal is to put uh, Cleveland on the $20 bill 
originally. He gets swapped out with Jackson and ends up on the thousand. In the 40s, Arthur Schlesinger does one of these presidential polls, and Cleveland is ranked, I think, eighth amongst these between Teddy Roosevelt and John Adams. So a lot of it, it just kind of washes away with time, partially because that's what happens to a lot of presidents. I mean, this is just kind of the nature of of, of human memory. But also Cleveland really does a lot of this to himself. And, and the reason that I say that it is he never writes a memoir. I mean, he gives a series of lectures about some policy stuff that happened in his presidency that, mm-hmm. you know, frankly, and I, I say this with some affection, but it's not very good. It's, it's very lawyerly. It doesn't really tell you anything about what's happening behind closed doors. And he doesn't keep his papers together. So that that seems like such a minor thing, but it's actually really significant in terms of a, of a president's legacy. If you don't leave, it doesn't have to be in your own hand, you know, an autobiography, but if you don't leave some record that allows people to really memorialize your time in a way that can carry forward for future generations, but you're going to be out of luck when it comes to where you fall in the historical memory. And so I, I guess I, I wrote this book partially to make up for, for Grover Cleveland's poor document retention policies. <laughs> yeah. Hey, if you don't mind going a couple minutes longer, because I, sure, I sure. really wanted to, because uh, we haven't talked about her at all. And uh, that's his wife, Frances, who is um, yeah. who's <laughs> a bigger celebrity than he is and more popular, uh, certainly, than than he is. That is absolutely uh, about, the case. Yeah. Uh, uh, talk about, one, their relationship, how uh, they got married. Because, again, he was a bachelor until very late. He got They got married in the White House uh, during his first term. I think that's the only president to ever, you know, to get married in the White House. And then his children, uh, I was really surprised this. His children had very interesting uh, lives of their own. Like all, uh, all of his kids uh, practically did. Um, really interesting where, you know, where life takes his children. Uh, and uh, even, yeah. uh, you know, and they're not really trading on his name or, you know, uh, him as a further, no. as a future president, but, or as a past president, but, um, they, they really go on, uh, remarkable directions. It's really neat. Yeah. So his, his family life starts, as you say, um, relatively late. He doesn't get married until in the middle of his first term, 1886, he's pushing 50 at this point. And uh, and he marries a, a woman who's not quite 22. And this may be one of the things that people also know about him. This is also where there's, there's kind of a misconception involved uh, that I try to clear up in the book that I don't think has been written anywhere else because I, I don't think anybody went down quite the same research rabbit trails that I did. But uh, Frances Folsom, his wife, was the daughter of his former law partner, Oscar Folsom, who by this point had been, had been dead for some time. He was killed quite tragically in a uh, carriage accident in Buffalo. And so you will sometimes hear that she was his his ward. And there's always the suggestion that he sort of he may have been grooming her. And when you put that alongside the Maria Halpin stuff, it just seems even more salacious. Mm. And it's about three degrees removed from reality, because what really happened is when her father died, she and her mother, her widowed mother, were sort of technically made wards of his but they didn't live with them he was essentially something like the executor of the estate Mm -hmm. and he's in buffalo and they're actually in minnesota for quite a while and when she does move back she's actually engaged to another guy for a while so the actual courtship doesn't really start until she's in college and uh which it's still a weird sort of situation although it's not weird to anyone around them that's the thing that really stands out her mother is very happy about this whole thing Mm -hmm. All, all the families on both sides seem totally fine with this. And the relationship seems very healthy and very loving. And they stay married until Cleveland dies 
um, in, in 1908. And people, you will sometimes hear, you know, I as a presidential nerd, as a kid, you'd read these sort of very shorthand presidential books. And there are certain stories that get passed on in all of them. One of them you'd always see as kind of testimony to the weirdness of this relationship is Cleveland supposedly saying when he was asked by his sister, when he was still a bachelor, why he hadn't married yet. Well, I'm just waiting for my wife to grow up, <laughs> which is icky, yeah. right? I mean, in this context, it's icky. And uh, I was very curious about the provenance of this. So I actually, the Library of Congress did have this. And I went back and found the writing from his sister where she tells this story. There's a very basic fact that's been left out of this, which is when you read this account, she's talking about a conversation that happened in the 1850s or early 1860s. Um, Francis Folsom hadn't been born at this point, And Grover Cleveland probably didn't even know her father the only reason his sister repeated this story, she thought it was ironic in light of the fact that he later marries yeah, this yeah. much younger woman. But he's not talking about her. It's just it's a it's a joke. You know, it's in the abstract. Um, but as you say, when they get married, she is a sensation the likes of which the country will not see again until Jackie Kennedy. And she's a decade younger than Jackie Kennedy was. Yeah. And she's uh, Fran fetching. I mean, from the, the picture of her in her youth. I mean, I don't know how many other pictures of her there are, but. Uh, she's a, uh, a handsome woman. She's very, very, very pretty. She's considered extremely beautiful at the time. Her face is slapped on every consumer product you can imagine from ashtrays to arsenic pills <laughs> to the point where Congress at one point actually considers legislation as to whether they should make it illegal to use a woman's likeness on a product without <laughs> her consent. When Grover Cleveland goes and tours the country, the audiences are more excited for her than they are for him. Sure. There's a newspaper editorial at one point on one of these stops that says there's a 10,000 guys who could be president of the United States as well as Grover Cleveland, but there's only one that could be first lady as well as his wife. Mm. She is just a real public sensation. She's really beloved. And they start they start having kids. The kids are beloved figures for the, for the public. Uh, some of the kids don't come along until after he's out of the White House. He doesn't have his last children until he's in his, uh, his mid-60s. There, there are five kids, um, three daughters, two boys. His firstborn uh, daughter, who's, who's his firstborn overall, sadly passes away in her youth. Uh, but as you say, the other four all have uh, very interesting trajectories. One of his daughters moves away to England, and her daughter, Grover Cleveland's granddaughter, is Philippa Foote, who for people who know philosophy, they'll know this is the woman who originates the trolley problem. She's a big uh, ethics figure in philosophy. Most people do not know that she is Grover Cleveland's granddaughter. Yeah, I almost like spit it, my uh, drink out when I was like reading that page. I was like, wow, that's, that's yeah. Crazy. People yeah. people don't know this. And and one son goes off and serves in World War One and becomes a, a lawyer in Baltimore and uh, ends up being Whitaker Chambers's lawyer. And uh, as I actually found out after the book was published, uh, in talking with one of Cleveland's grandsons who is still alive. Uh, he was also H.L. Mencken's lawyer, ironically enough, since I start the book with Mencken. I, I was not aware of that. Mm. And another one becomes an actor uh, and spends some time on Broadway and then moves up to New Hampshire and does sort of local theater up there. And as you said, none of them are trading on the family name. Uh, none of Nobody goes into politics. And the members of the – there's only a few, the, but the members of the Cleveland family I know to this day, it, it's amazing. Uh, they are just the most normal – well-adjusted like this doesn't matter to it matters you know in terms mm -hmm. of the family legacy but none of them carry themselves with any sort of 
pretense about this. They're sure. just much like their patriarch. They are just totally unprepossessing people. Yeah, and the 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 eldest child, the one that died, Ruth, um, yeah. <clears throat> she is, uh, you know, popularly known or the the candy company that made the candy bar, Baby Ruth, uh, said that they named the candy bar after her. Most likely not. They probably named it. Uh, they said they named it that so Babe Ruth wouldn't sue them. But right. Uh, but that show, I mean, that candy bar didn't even uh, exist until like the twenties, I think. So decades later. Yeah, decades after you know. 16, 17 years after uh, Ruth dies, um, you know, she's still in the public memory in that way. Yeah. It's uh, as you say, it is a story that should be regarded with some skepticism. This was almost certainly to shield themselves from lawsuits (laughs) that they did this. But uh, I think you're right. In so far as if in the 1920s, I think it was the early 20s that the baby Ruth was introduced. If you can even offer this as a plausible cover story. Like people have to know what you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, it it does tell you that there was still a cultural purchase around Ruth, who who was the firstborn, and that's why there was such a public sensation around her, because the public was sort of waiting with this president with this new young wife. They were waiting for the kids to come. Yeah, okay. All right, well, thanks for indulging me and staying a couple extra minutes to do that. Um, Just one more thing, um, I guess, to end end it. I guess you say, asked, you know, was there uh, a defining principle of Cleveland's political career? And uh, also, secondary question, because uh, it's one I normally ask everybody that comes on at the end, is just, uh, you know, what would you like the audience, uh, what would you like the audience to get out of this book? Or, you know, what would you, what's the one thing you want a reader from taking away having read it? Those are both good questions. Um, in terms of a defining principle, l- l- let me answer that two separate ways that, that will both be brief. The The first one, the overarching point, which we've already touched on, is just how much – this is more a thematic one – how much of Grover Cleveland's decision-making, almost all of it, is based on an adherence to principle. It's based on integrity. It's based on doing what he thought was right versus being politically expedient. And I'll come back to this actually in the answer to your second question. But in terms of actual sort of operational political principles, there are two things that you see really consistently throughout his career. One is that – and he says this over and over again, some variation on this. Any red cent that the government takes from the taxpayer that is not putting towards legitimate purposes is essentially tantamount to theft. That's how seriously he takes the responsibility for a government to be a good steward of taxpayer money. And the second principle that you see um, throughout his career, very unusual. I mean, not unusual for sort of philosophical types, but very unusual for an active politician, is this rigorous uh, insistence on the rule of law in the sense that everyone has to be treated exactly the same. The government cannot be going around carving out areas of interest special exceptions for businesses, special exceptions for, you know, the guys going on the pension roll or whatever. This is a consistent theme throughout his career. So I would say that in terms of the defining principles. In terms of what I want people to get out of the book, this is this is an affectionate biography in the sense that uh, I know other people can do this, but I cannot. I couldn't have spent this many years with uh, a person, even a disembodied version of a person without liking them a little bit. I just think it would have been too too tedious. 
Um, so it is it is affectionate, and obviously I think that Cleveland's importance uh, has been understated by historians and the like. But it's not uncritical, and it's certainly not a hagiography. And uh, to sort of bookend this, go back to where we started, you know, I, I said at the start that Cleveland embodies all of these things that people say they want in a president, the guy who does operate entirely according to principle, does always do what he thinks is right instead of what's politically expedient. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that I wanted to write this was I wanted people to be faced with the um, the double-edged sword nature of that, by, by which I mean Cleveland is deeply to be admired for this. There is a sense of character and integrity that runs deeper in him than the vast majority of our presidents. And it is also unambiguously the case that this in many ways makes him a bad politician. It costs him elections. It causes rifts within his party. It leads him to not succeed on some of his policy goals because he is he is too forceful. He is too unwilling to make concessions. He is too unwilling to do the little things that lubricate political life. So, you know, as a, a good sort of uh, conservative insight to this whole thing, right? It, it's all a trade-off when, when you come down to it. There are so many things to admire about a figure like this, and there are so many costs that come with them. So I wanted people to be able to behold a figure who was close to an ideal that a lot of us hold and realize that for all the good that comes from that, there are also all these challenges mm -hmm. interspersed in it. And I just think that he is a uniquely studyable figure on this front because he's very unusual amongst our presidents for operating within this tight of framework of principle. You know, he just doesn't have the, the elasticity that a lot of other presidents do. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, you know, not being able to, you know, you couldn't imagine spending time with someone, you know, you didn't like spending time with. I, 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 yeah. uh, some of my favorite biographies are the ones I'm sure you've come across these before too, where you can tell that the writer uh, went into the book really liking uh, the subject. And then somewhere along that, that whole time writing the book and spending time with that person, like started to like actively hate that, that person. Right. right. There, there's know? a turn at <laughs> yeah. some point. Yeah. yeah I, you can... I do know, I do know precisely what you're talking about. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's funny. I've had to kind of amend the way that I say this because what I've, what I started saying when I was promoting the book was I don't think you can write a biography of somebody without liking them. But that's clearly not true, right? Yeah. There, there are great biographies of, of Hitler by yeah. people that I'm pretty confident do not like Hitler. <laughs> they're, they're compelled by him, right? There's something that's deeply interesting. Yeah, or Napoleon and, or something like that, yeah. Yeah, and it gives me a, an appreciation for those kinds of writers because I don't think I could do that. I really don't. I, I yeah. think that to spend years of your life – I mean this was a three-year project – to spend years of your life with somebody that you're just kind of constantly sort of curling up your lip at, I think is a much harder task than the one that I did. So I, I had the, yeah. the pleasure of having Grover Cleveland's company, even if at times I find him stubborn and, and frustrating. But I'm yeah, sure he'd say the same. Thing yeah, yeah, and it's just you know even just reading about somebody, you know, it's just nice uh, when they're, you know, I mean they write books about Lincoln or Churchill or somebody all the time, uh, but it's just nice to uh, even you know all the new books it's just nice to spend time with that person uh because they're just sort of i mean because that's basically what you're doing right when you're reading a book about something you're basically in a way yeah. uh, spending time with that person or communing with that person in some way shape or form 
Um, so it's, you know, it's nice to spend that time with somebody, um, you know, I can imagine reading like 20 books on Churchill in a row. I can't imagine reading like, you know, like 20 books on like Lenin in a row or like, uh, or, or, you know, or somebody like that. Um, but yeah, but this, um, yeah, your book, uh, like I said, it's, um, at the beginning of the podcast, a, a tremendous, uh, tremendously readable narrative. You know, it's not a, you know, it's not a thousand page doorstop biography and, you know, there's something to be said for, for those types of biographies, but there's something also to be said too, for the, you know, the nice sort of, uh, lean, crisp, you know, 300, 400 page biography of a, of, uh, of a historical figure. Um, and this is, uh, one of those kind of books, uh, just, uh, uh really well researched, really well written. You can definitely tell you're a, uh, uh, a former speechwriter uh, with your turn of phrase that that uh, that makes itself pretty obvious early on. Um, uh, it's just a uh, it's a really really great book. I highly highly recommend it for everybody out there to learn about uh, uh, somebody that uh, the American public really uh, should know more about, and that's Grover Cleveland. And again, the name of the book is A Man of Iron: The Turbulent Life and Improbable Presidency of Grover Cleveland, and the author once again. Uh, Mr. Troy Senek. So, uh, Mr. Senek, uh, again, yeah, just uh, thank you very much, uh, very, very much for coming on the podcast and and talking Grover Cleveland with me and discussing your book and staying for an extra couple minutes to indulge me on on a couple things. I really, really appreciate it. Of course, thank you, Tim. It's been a delight. Uh, no problem. And again, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a five star review and sharing with your friends. And if you have books that you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, or if you have any uh, questions, comments, any sort of that's sort of thing you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org that's uh, t-b-e-n-s-o-n at heartland.org and for more information about the heartland institute you can just go to heartland.org and then we have our uh, twitter account for the uh, podcast you can also reach out to us there if you have any like i said questions comments anything you know give us a follow send us a dm all that sort of stuff our a our twitter handle is illbooks at illbooks uh at i-l-l books so make sure you check that out and um Yeah, that's pretty much it. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll uh, see you guys next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye. Hello, everybody. Hi, all tonight. This is Alan Free, the old king of the moondoggers, and it's time again for another of your favorite rock and roll sessions as you enjoy the Moondog Show. (laughs) 